0: Like Marshall said, my name is Hayden, uh, one of the deacons here, and um, obviously preaching this week. And we are beginning um, a series that Marshall mentioned last week on Advent um, called The Mothers of Jesus. Essentially, taking the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and tracing um, the line of women that... um, Uh, quite literally, moved history toward the first coming of Jesus. And that's what uh, Advent means. It's a season of both um, looking and longing. We look back to Jesus' first coming, his incarnation, uh, but we also long for um, his second coming. And as we look back uh, at this genealogy, the first woman... We see in it is Tamar, whose story, um, give it up for Tamar, Um, (laughs) whose story we find in Genesis 38, a a very dark uh, passage of scripture, which is oddly fitting, um, as one uh, Episcopal priest wrote in her book on Advent that uh, Advent actually begins in the dark. And so let's read uh, Genesis 38, actually, verses one. Through 30, we're going to get uh, all the good parts in here. Um, So let me read uh, 1 through 30. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers and his friend, Hira the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told... Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned in... To her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter in law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on her garments of her widowhood. And then verse 24, just for time's sake. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread <clears throat> on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out, and the scarlet thread with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zirah. Uh, The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, would you be with us this morning? Would you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things uh, out of your law, even from a story like this, and that we would be uh, captured by the grace of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So this passage comes to us at an interesting point in the story of Genesis. So the the Joseph narrative has been um, picking up steam for several chapters now, and then all of a sudden it seems like the author uh, shifts gears from Joseph to Judah. And Judah, uh, if you remember, is like Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. He's one of the the 12 tribes of Israel, and he is in the family of promise. So their great-grandfather, Abraham, uh, God gave the promise to him that he would bless the whole world through their family. So this is the family that Judah is in, the family of promise. But Judah has been on a downward trajectory for a while. There's tension in this story. I mean, just to summarize This passage alone, Judah has taken non-Israelite women, a woman to marry, has had sons with her, and eventually takes another Canaanite woman to uh, give his oldest son. She, Tamar, gets passed around because his uh, sons keep dying, and he ultimately fails to take care of her um, as a daughter-in-law, which would have been his duty. He sends her away. Then she goes to um, some very extreme lengths to secure a family and then essentially blackmails him to avoid being burned. So, happy Advent. Uh, It is a tangled web of despair, of deception, and ultimately of deliverance through um, a pretty unlikely character. And so that's how I want to to look at this passage today. Despair, deception, and deliverance. So first, despair. Uh, Like I said, Judas' track record is not so great at this point. He's actually the one that convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into Egypt. And then here in verse 1, we read that he went down from his brothers. One commentator noted how this geographical descent actually mirrors his spiritual condition. Uh, Judah's going down. He has isolated himself from his brothers. And then in verse 2, it says he took a Canaanite wife and had three sons with her. And we know throughout Genesis, marriages to Canaanite women were not necessarily celebrated. And so here we have Judah, and he has isolated himself from his brothers. He has threatened the family of promise by taking Canaanite women and adopting some of their culture. And it's into this downward spiral that he pulls Tamar to marry his oldest son, Er. And from there, the despair just spreads like ink spilled out on paper first heir dies verse 7 but heir, Judas firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death so the this, this situation is Tamar has been taken from her family from her land, from her culture from everything that she is familiar with and forced into a marriage with a wicked man and that by itself is worthy of despair, it's a hopeless situation But then he dies. And we can read that, especially knowing of his wickedness, and think, uh, good good for Tamar. She is free from this monster. Uh, But her husband died. She's a widow, and she's childless. And to be a widow in the ancient Near East, and to be a childless widow, was to be utterly destitute and to be considered a failure. So this is despair. She has nothing. In the eyes of her culture, she is nothing. Her future, her sense of identity, her safety really all depends on a practice of the day called Levite marriage, which we see play out in verse 8. Essentially, Levite marriage said that a brother should, uh, it was his duty to take his brother's, a deceased brother's wife have a son with her, and that son would receive the inheritance of the deceased brother. And that served a couple purposes. One, it obviously honored and carried on the deceased brother's name, but it also protected the woman. And this is so important, I think, for us as modern readers of the Bible to hear. This was a a system put into place to limit the despair of widowhood. And so it's on Onan now, the next brother in line, to step up, to carry on his brother's legacy and to protect Tamar. And then Onan abuses her. And I, I do mean abuses. This is a graphic passage of Scripture. The word for his wickedness here is has the sense of actively doing harm in a way that has ripple effects in all kinds of different directions. He is actively abusing the honor of his deceased brother and actively abusing Tamar by robbing her of of children and of the quality of life and protection that, that that brought. But he's also actively abusing the promise of God to Abraham that through their offspring the world was going to be blessed. Onan, in the most graphic and literal sense, is wasting that promise, if uh, you're tracking with me there. Um, So instead of thinking of his brother, instead of thinking of Tamar, instead of thinking of God and his promises, Onan is, is bent in on himself, and the result is that Tamar is reduced to what she can offer him uh, physically. And just in case we were wondering how God feels about that, Onan uh, is struck dead as well. But there is a third brother, Shelah. But before there's even a chance for him to marry Tamar, uh, Judah abandons Tamar. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die, Shelah, like his brothers. Did you catch it there at the end? He is afraid of Tamar. He thinks um, she's unsafe. She is the reason why all this death is happening. It couldn't possibly be because of my wicked son's She's unsafe. Do you feel the despair just thickening for Tamar? She's twice widowed, still childless, used, abused, devalued, and now she's the problem. And she's sent away like a dog that has chewed up just one too many pairs of shoes. She was branded a failure. Her widow's garments that she put on would have been like a scarlet letter declaring to the world uh, who she really was. Unsafe, a failure, <clears throat> dangerous even. And actually, Tamar has a good bit in common with the uh, main character of, of that novel, Scarlet Letter, Hester. Hester had been shunned by her community, uh, forced to wear a literal uh, letter A for the adultery that she had committed. And uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author of that book, described Hester's situation like this. He said, The Scarlet Letter was her passport into regions where other women dared not tread. Shame, despair, solitude. These had been her teachers. These were Tamar's teachers, too. Tamar had a Ph.D. in Despair. Now, let me ask you, what are your teachers, to use Hawthorne's language? What are those things that have authority over you, that instruct how you view the world, how you view yourself? Is it despair, like Tamar? Is it abandonment? Is it isolation, maybe, like Judah? Is it the worth that someone does or doesn't attribute to you. We've been offered better teachers than these. Ones that aren't based on our circumstances. Ones that are fixed. God has given us his authoritative word, his instruction, his teaching. Let me encourage you this morning to submit yourself to the divine teacher and let the light of his promises instruct you even in your darkest despair and so that's where the story begins in despair and then it moves to deception and deception is is everywhere on everyone's part first judah deceives tamar we see it at the end of verse 14 for she for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Tamar realizes what has happened. She's, she's been had. She was at home holding out hope that just maybe Judah would uh, be a man of integrity, a man of his word, and he would really let her marry uh, Shalab. But now it is very clear that Judah had no intention of letting his last living son anywhere near Tamar and so Tamar takes matters into her own hands and she plots her own deception in that same verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of a name which is on the road to Timnah. So off come the widow's garments and on goes the veil of deception, And here we have one of those morally perplexing passages of Scripture. Tamar poses seductively in order to get pregnant by her father-in-law. What do we do with this? Well, we have to remember the context of Levite marriage. Okay, so Tamar was legally married to heir. When heir died, Tamar was legally entitled to sons through Onan to carry on Eir's name. When Onan died, Tamar was legally entitled to sons through Shelah to carry on Eir's name. And when Shelah was denied her through Judah's deceit, she had the right to have sons for Shelah even through Judah as a surrogate. It was Judah's duty to provide for her through any means. But because of Judah's fear and his lack of faith, she poses as a prostitute. Not to engage in prostitution, but as a means to get what she is rightfully entitled to. Is this immorality? Is this unconventional obedience? It's not so black and white. But we can ask Tamar, why? Why risk Further despair? Why risk death? Why not stay childless? Why not just wash your hands of Israel altogether and marry some Canaanite bachelor? It's because Tamar believed the promise of God to Abraham that through their line he was going to bless all the families of the earth, as many as the stars in the sky, and with every fiber of her being. She says, I am not going to miss out on being part of that story. This Canaanite woman passed over, feared unworthy, had greater faith than a son of the promise. She has been captured by the promises of God. A a new study recently came out from the Webb Telescope. Uh, they have found two of the most distant galaxies we've ever seen. And Paola Santini, she's a researcher at the National Institute for Astrophysics's Astronomical Observatory of Rome. And she co authored this study, and, and this is what she said about these two galaxies She said, These observations just make your head explode. This is a whole new chapter in astronomy. It's like an archaeological dig and suddenly you find a lost city or something you didn't know about. It's just staggering. Now, as staggering as as that is, and it is, you should look at these pictures, when God took Abraham outside and showed him the sky, he showed him what no telescope could ever see. He showed him a cosmos of blessing. Not a new chapter in astronomy, but a new chapter in the story of redemption. Not a remnant of the past, but a future of families filling the earth with blessing. And here's what's even more staggering. Judah has grown cold to this promise. He's so afraid of losing his last son And he's willing to let the promise end with him. But Tamar is captured by the promises of blessing. She has breathed in the air of a night sky full of stars and says, I want that blessing to flow through me. And she risks everything to put herself in the path of God's promises. So what would it look like for you to be captured by the promises of God? What would you risk to place yourself in the path of God's promise? Would you risk being inconvenienced in order to make space for the means of grace, worship, scripture, prayer? Would you risk being vulnerable in order to be really, truly, deeply known here at Hope? Maybe you'd risk comfort in order to love your neighbors, that the promise of blessing to the world could flow through you. Through her deception, Tamar risked everything, but it also led to her deliverance. So let's end there with deliverance. Tamar executes her deception pretty flawlessly. She uh, gets pregnant by Judah. She secures his signet and his staff, essentially his driver's license and his credit card, and then she waits. Three months go by. It's a knock at Judah's door. Tamar's pregnant. Immorality. And Judah sees his opportunity to be rid of Tamar for good, and he swells with injustice, and in just two Hebrew words shows us just how calloused he is. Become, bring, burn. But deliverance is worked for Tamar. She's been waiting for this moment. She is ready with the evidence of her innocence. And she says, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And then with just one Hebrew word, recognize. Recognize. And Judah doesn't put up much of a fight. Just as quickly as he had demanded her to be burned, he recants in verse 26. He says, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. This is genuine repentance. He admits his offense against Tamar, but he's also admitting his lack of faith, that he didn't trust the promises of God enough to risk his last son. But Tamar has risked everything. And in an instant, she is vindicated. She is delivered from the threat of death, but also delivered from childlessness. But we also see deliverance begin to be worked for Judah. He's changed. In 1997, Fred Rogers Mr. was given the Emmy Lifetime Achievement Award. And instead of giving some big speech, he asked everyone there in the audience to take 10 seconds, 10 seconds of silence to think about the people who got them to where they were, the people who, he said, uh, loved you into being. And then he thanked those people, and he walked off the stage. It's a really powerful speech uh, for a lot of reasons, but I think mostly because it reminds us that we are changed by people. God is intent on working deliverance in our lives in all kinds of ways, and he often uses others to loosen our shackles. So who would that be for you? Whose prayers have changed your life, whose faith fans yours into flame, whose presence pulls you into to deeper holiness. I think if Judah was sitting in that audience, one of the first names he would have thought of was Tamar. You see, until now Judah has really been a failure. He has failed as a son of the covenant by intermarrying with Canaanites. He has failed as a father, raising wicked sons, and he has clearly failed as a father in law. He has been getting people out of his way his whole life. Joseph to Egypt, he left his brothers, sends Tamar away. But a shift happens in this passage. Tamar has disrupted him, whether she meant to or not. Her faith. Detonates, and the shrapnel has pierced Judah's heart, and he begins to change. And this callous, selfish man, just six chapters later, in Genesis 44, is begging to be held prisoner himself so that his youngest brother can be reunited with their father. He's grown tender to his family. And by Genesis 49, this now broken humble, transformed man is blessed by God. Do you remember the evidence that Tamar brought forward? His signet, his cord, and his staff, the symbol of his rule? When chapter 49, verse 10, the blessing he receives says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God is saying, I'm I'm going to bless you, Judah. Not only that, I'm going to redeem you through the very means of your greatest failure, through the rule, through the scepter of a Savior. And it's in that promise that we find our deliverance, too. One commentator writes, Blessed be Tamar. Through her determination to have children of the promise she scratched and clawed her way into Israel and secured for Judah the honor of fathering both David and the Savior of the world. Tamar knew there was a promise of blessing, but she could have never dreamed of who this Savior would be. The very God who told Abraham to look into the night sky would descend through the stars. To be born through the whispers of immorality to a virgin. To rule, not through wielding power, but through weakness, through despair. To rule through welcoming the unworthy. Through seeing and speaking to the abandoned. Through touching and, and healing those who were considered most dangerous. Through making all who have faith in him children of Abraham. You see, God used Tamar, the most unworthy of characters, to move history towards Jesus because this is what Jesus does. He invites the most unworthy of sinners to join in the promises of God. So Tamar's name in Matthew 1 is a gospel signpost. Here she stands not because of her pedigree, not because of her religiosity, not even because she's a perfect moral example, but because God broke through for her. In case we missed that, the son who will carry on the line to Jesus is not Zera, but Perez. That literally means breakthrough. Through Perez, the promised Savior came. God himself broke through. The blessing of Abraham came as a person. This was the only way to bring in the unworthy, the outsiders, into the family of promise. It wouldn't be through your effort, through your morality, through your religiosity, your good name. God had to break through with his son so that we could know him as a father that we might be brought in as children, children of Abraham, to know the blessing of God. And what is that blessing? We say it almost every week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face. This is blessing, to see the face of God, to live in his presence, and his presence is, has broken through in the person of Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, we are made righteous in the presence of the Father. He delights over you with a fatherly countenance. This is staggering, but uh, it's not the end of the story. Jesus will break through again. Remember, we're, we're in Advent. We're between breakthroughs. Jesus has broken through for you. He's made the Father known. He has given us his pledge, the signet ring of his Spirit, that if you are in him, this is the guarantee that he will never leave you. In fact, he is coming again for you to break through again, and we will inherit a new earth ruled by blessing like Justin read earlier, to feast with the king because we will be with our God and we will behold him face to face. So this life, your story, my story, is often one of despair, of deception, call it injustice. But because of Jesus, this life is one of faith, one of transformation, And ultimately, one of the promise of deliverance, of breakthrough. May we be a church captured by that promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Um, Thank you for Tamar as an example of faith not in who she was or what she could do but through what you had said you would do Um, as we just continue through this advent season would you help us look to who Jesus is and await his coming. Christ's name, amen.